We want to express our appreciation to Jim Skidmore, the treasurer of our church, for uh, leading us in that very moving prayer a moment ago and also in our first lesson. And uh, I do want to underline what he has said about our gifts uh, so that you will consider your own pattern of giving. Uh, people have often asked me about the Montreal Church uh, policy in giving gifts that are designated for special uh, purposes that you are interested in uh, are by rules of our session always uh, directed to those purposes. And so you can uh, give to whatever missionary cause you wish to support and be sure that it will go the way you have directed it. Now then, uh, our lesson today is really a continuation of the lesson from last week. Uh, last week we had been studying uh, in, we have been studying for some weeks, ever since Christmas actually, uh, in the Gospel according to Matthew. And uh, we had seen what is called by scholars of the New Testament the watershed of the Gospel. Uh, the breaking point, the, the pinnacle here where things are going to turn, the turning point. And it comes when Jesus asks his disciples, who do the sons of men say that I, the son of man, a title which is used in the 8th Psalm and in the book of Ezekiel and also in the book of Daniel, a title that really has to do with the federal head of the human race. It's a, a title for the Messiah. Who do they say the son of man is? And you will remember that uh, there were very complimentary uh, things that were pointed out. I was thinking the other day that Jesus' enemies called him a lot of different things. They said he was a wine-bibber and a friend of publicans and sinners. Uh, they said that he was beside himself, which meant they said he was crazy. Uh, they said that uh, he cast out demons by the power of the devil. So his enemies said a lot of ugly things about him. But his own apostles who were with him, when Jesus asked him, what are people saying about me? Not because he wished to take a popularity poll, but because he had been sowing the seed of the word of God and he wished to see how they were identifying him. And there were some who said that he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. And we pointed out that John was the fearless preacher who was bold enough to point out the sins of Herod to such an extent that in a drunken orgy, Herod had promised the head of John the Baptist uh, as satisfaction for a vengeful woman. They thought that perhaps John had been raised again from the dead. Some of them saw in Jesus Jeremiah, a tender-hearted prophet who wept over the sins of his people but stayed with them and sought to bear a testimony with them. And some of them saw in him Elijah, the great towering prophet of the Old Testament, whose life was like a whirlwind and who was taken up by chariots of fire to heaven at the end of his life. And then Jesus said the key question, the question which each 
which each one of us must answer, the greatest question in all of the Bible and in all of life, who do you say that I am? And what have you done as a result of it? Peter came back with the answer that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commended Peter and told him that flesh and blood had not revealed this to him, but that his Father in heaven had made known to him who he was. And upon this rock, and remember we pointed out that he uses a, a diminutive, uh, sort of affectionate term, he calls him really Rocky, and this was long before the movie came along. Uh, uh, he calls him Rocky. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And uh, then he says something about the keys of the kingdom. Unto you I will give the keys of the kingdom. At Pentecost, Peter will take the key and open the door, and many will come in. And in Acts chapter 10, he will take the keys again and the Gentiles will be welcomed in. And every preacher of the gospel may take the gospel keys and open the doors to the kingdom of heaven through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm glad he did not give me any physical keys because I spent all last week looking for a key. And finally I went to the thing and had six made. I lose everything. And I'm glad he didn't entrust them to me. Uh, but the key here is the proclamation of the gospel. And this, uh, and each believer, uh, and each local congregation of believers uh, have the right to open the door of heaven for people. And we have the right to say to the unrepentant that their sins are retained when they will not repent from their sins. Well, now this makes it all the more important that if you take your Bible now and turn to uh, chapter 17 of the Gospel of Matthew, in my New International Version, it's on page 910. After six days, they point this out, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses, Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, that's Peter, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen. To him. When the disciples heard this, 
they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Then let me just read one more incident here. And when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt down before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He is an epileptic and suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire, into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal. We are studying through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've come to the Mount of Transfiguration, which is one of the most important parts of the Bible. And if you take that little guide for daily worship, which has been printed in the bulletin, the little insert with the guide on the back, this is a great deal of help. Uh, I love this uh, devotional booklet, which is way over 100 years old. Not this particular issue, of course. But uh, uh, the, uh, this is, uh, I remember James S. Stewart, the great preacher at the University of Edinburgh, who spoke at the centenary, the 100th year anniversary of Scripture Union, commending it, because it is one of those unusual devotional booklets that sticks right with the passage of Scripture. Uh, some of our elders, Dr. John Hillsman, was telling me that he kept his copies of Scripture Union and uh, kept them in a notebook. And he's not the only one. A number of other people do, too, because it stays right with the passage of Scripture, and it will help you uh, to go through the Bible uh, in a period of five years. If you want to speed it up, there's a, at the bottom of the page a list of chapters that you can read that will get you through in one year. But when you read the Bible, before you read it, we pray, as we prayed a moment ago. And then we read carefully the passage of Scripture. Then we want to think about what we've read. We want to be willing in openness to be ready to obey God's Word. That must be what uh, we have to get through our heads. We do not take our, our cue from the polls. We do not take our cue from the media. We do not take our cue from the fads. Go back to the Word of God. When the Westminster Confession of Faith was being written, there was a famous phrase that was often repeated by those uh, great men of God who put together that remarkable document, Wretch Me the Book. Wretch me the book. It was the Bible. They wanted every single thing that they taught to be solidly anchored in Scripture. And so when we do this, we find ourselves on strong ground. So what is the main point 
of this passage. It is going to show to us the approval of God upon the ministry of Jesus for the sake of his apostles, Peter and James and John, these three, who seem to have had some special relationship to him. I know I took as my text for my life when I surrendered it to Christ, Philippians 3.10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, even to be conformable unto his death, those great words of the Apostle Paul. Well, if you look at these words from Philippians 3.10, which Paul spoke, and then see Peter and James and John, you will see that Jesus took them with him into the home of Jairus where a little girl was dead. And he caused everyone else to leave except the mother and the father and those three. And he said, little maid, arise. And by God's power through Christ, the Son of God, she arose. And Peter and James and John were given a hint of the power of his resurrection ahead of time. These are the three that he took with him on the Mount of Transfiguration that we have here. And these are the three who go with him in the Garden of Gethsemane and the fellowship of his sufferings there to learn what his death is going to be about. That in the atonement will be our salvation and no other place. So Peter and James and John, the brother of James, that's to identify him as, uh, he is called James the Less. Uh, that means short. Uh, and he led them up into a high mountain to themselves, and there he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. And here, uh, his clothes glisten as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah. Moses, the great lawgiver from Mount Sinai. And Elijah, the great prophet from Mount Carmel who challenged the prophets of Baal and who cleansed Israel of its evils and brought it back to its true faith in Jehovah and sought to work in that land. Peter and James and John were asleep. Can you imagine going to a Bible conference where the preacher is Jesus and Peter and Jesus and Elijah and Moses and going to sleep? Well, that's what happened. Peter and James and John went, fell asleep. It must have been at night because Jesus often went out into the mountain at night and prayed, and he took these three with him. It was after that great confession at Caesarea Philippi. And uh, they are awakened, and they see that Elijah and Moses are there, and Peter, who is never at a loss for words, quickly speaks up and says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. 
If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now this is an interesting thing. While he was still speaking, he was always speaking, while he was still speaking, he is interrupted by the voice of God. And the voice says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It actually is a continuous action there. Keep on listening to him. And then Peter gets very quiet and is terrified. Uh, first he speaks up. But it's to this point that I want to speak. He wants to put up a shrine. It's the, what has been called the enshrining instinct, the impulse to enshrine. Why do we want to enshrine a moment? We want to freeze it and keep it so that we can manage it. And we want to do that even with the things of God. And that's precisely what God is not going to allow us to do. Because that means that something which is dynamic and powerful and going on is not going to be frozen and put in our pocket like a rabbit's foot. Peter uh, blurted out, Lord, I'm glad that I'm here. I'm glad that I got to see Moses, and I'm glad I got to see Elijah. Isn't it be a wonderful thing to put up three? I know what my ministry is. It's to build three shrines here. I was at a presidential prayer breakfast in Washington when the president of the United States, whom I knew, I don't know what 10th-rate speechwriter wrote it into his speech, but he got up at the prayer breakfast and proposed that among all the monuments in Washington, there should be erected a monument to the living God. Of course, he said it had to be done by public subscription, so uh, public funds wouldn't be uh, used, with, so government money wouldn't be used to it. I thought to my soul, uh, that's exactly what we don't need. This is what Peter is talking about. And the reason that the voice of God rebukes him for his suggestion is that this enshrining instinct heaps praise and compliments but wants to manage. And that's the way we do with the Lord if we're not careful. We want to uh, keep him in reserve, keep him on call, keep him so that he comes to us in our grief or sorrow, but we don't want his living, powerful presence. Now, listen carefully and let me read you a poem that is very important. It's called The Divine Tragedy. Now, see if you can catch each of the words. Here is uh, uh, what St. John Adcock says. When a blithe infant, that's a little happy baby. When a blithe infant 
lapped in careless joy, sports with a woolen lion. If the toy should come to life, the child so direly crossed, faced with this actuality, were lost. Leave us our toys then. Happier we shall stay while they remain but toys and we can play with them and do with them as suits us best. Reality would add to our unrest. We want no living Christ whose truth intense pretends to no belief in our pretense and flashing on all folly and deceit would blast our world to ashes at our feet. We do but ask to see no more of him below than is displayed in the dead plaything our own hands have made to lull our fears and comfort us in loss. A wooden Christ upon a wooden cross. Now this is what happens with the enshrining instinct. And this is exactly why the voice speaks from heaven and says, you are listening to my beloved son, and I want you to keep on listening and to hear what he is saying, because life is going to keep on moving. In a few minutes, you're going to go down to the bottom of the mountain, and you're going to see a poor demon-possessed boy and a distraught father who wants to believe, but who is so burdened over his child that he can only cry out to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And where they are powerless and cannot do anything because there has not been in their fasting and prayer that element of faith which would have removed that evil power and cast out that demon. You see, Peter, in his enshrining instinct, wants to manage the situation. He wants to manage things. How often people would like to get into some sort of building program or activity instead of really getting on with the business of living up. 100% for Jesus day after day after day with praying and reading our Bible and studying our own evil hearts and seeing what we ought to be. Jesus was transfigured before them and that word is metamorphosis. Meta is change. We know that uh, and morphe of course is form. Uh, change in form. Uh, in this word is used only four times in the New Testament. Uh, in Mark 9, 2, transfigure. In 2 Corinthians 3, 18, uh, there is a, a phrase, change. Uh, that 2 Corinthian passage is easy. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness, from one degree of glory to another. That means that we should be glorifying God 
with our lives. Day by day, we ought to be glorifying God with our lives. Not just building a shrine and walking away from it, but glorifying God in the manner in which we speak and live day after day after day. That's what we were talking about the other night when we looked at the Westminster Catechism's first, first question. What is the chief end of man? What's the chief goal of man? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Every week when I come dashing out here, I have to button up this robe. And sometimes I get the thing started wrong. And it comes out wrong at the top. If you don't get it started right, it won't come out right. And life won't come out right if we do not seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so this is what's being laid upon us here. We must put him first. We must listen to Christ and obey Christ. We cannot freeze him and keep him as a good luck charm to lull us in our fears and comfort us in our loss. And so that passage in Corinthians tells us that disciples and followers of Jesus ought to be glorifying him in their lives. In Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, and that's the word there again, transformed by the renewal of your mind. J.B. Phillips translates that, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. But let your mind be transformed by Christ. I used to hear an old country preacher who made a very excellent observation about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. He said he lost his mind on the road to Damascus. And he said back at uh, Jerusalem in the seminary of Gamaliel, they were all talking and the professor said, well, have you heard about Saul of Tarsus? He's gone off on religion, following Jesus of Nazareth. That's the last we'll ever hear of him. He's lost his mind. And they said that. Well, you remember when he was giving his great speech before Felix and Festus, uh, before Festus and Agrippa? The king jumped up and said, Paul, you're raving. You're mad. And he said, I'm not crazy. I'm speaking words of soberness and truth. For them, the Christian faith was not an hour on Sunday morning. For them, the Christian faith was all of their life, all of the time. And so our minds are to be changed, reoriented, and redirected by the power of Christ there. Now then, the shrine, I said, is dangerous because it makes it makes it possible for us to manage what we enshrine. And when we do that, it, be, it, it will always work out wrong. Uh, Mother Teresa, uh, one of my favorite preachers, is a preacher out in California who's written a number of commentaries, one on Romans, one on John, one on Matthew. Uh, and he... He says of Mother, he admires her and has quoted her so much that one of his listeners to his tapes sent him an autographed uh, book uh, from uh, Malcolm Muggeridge's little book, Something Beautiful for God. And she had written in the front of it uh, to Earl Palmer from M. 
Teresa. Uh, and then she didn't leave it at that because, you see, he could have put that in his pocket and forgot about what she was doing. But she wrote a little poem herself. And she said, if we pray, we will believe. If we believe, we will love. If we love, we will serve. Only then we will put our love for God into living action through service of Christ in the distressing disguise of the poor. Now then, listen really carefully because I'm laying a heavy trip on you now. At Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. My Father revealed this to you. Then Jesus went on to discuss his suffering and his death. And then he went on to tell them, Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, and whoever keeps his life will lose it. Take up your cross and follow me. It's interesting that Peter didn't say, let's build a shrine here to discipleship. He wanted to build a shrine to the excitement of Moses and Elijah's appearance. But he didn't want to build a shrine there to the meaning of discipleship because that discipleship business is what some young person said about the Christian life. It's so daily. <laughs> it is. It's take up your cross daily and follow me. We live for him day after day after day. You know when that little woman, Mother Teresa, a little wisp of a woman from Albania, in her house of the destitute and dying in Calcutta in India, when she received the Nobel Prize in Stockholm, they had reserved for her a great suite in a huge hotel and a big banquet in her honor. She attended the banquet, but she left the banquet and went to a convent and slept there with the sisters that were in the convent to the consternation of the committee. The enshrining instinct was not going to freeze her uh, into uh, doing uh, anything other than what God had set her out to do. And she also took the occasion to blast away at abortion as the murder of the innocent and to demand that those who had it help out with the work of relieving the distress of the poor. And it was a very uncomfortable audience that heard her speech, very much like the audience that Harvard that heard Solzhenitsyn speak. It's funny. And while he was jumping on the Russians, everybody thought he was great. But when he came over here and spoke at Harvard, then all the newspapers began to come out with articles saying, why didn't he stick to writing novels? Uh, that's because the rubber meets the road when we cannot manage the one whom we are to serve. And uh, that is the big point here, is that he has called us to service. He has called us to discipleship, and he confirms it through this experience. 
And down the mountain they go, and the epileptic boy is there, who is also demon-possessed. And that boy is spoken to, and that boy is healed by Jesus. And then Jesus challenges them again to be people of faith and wants them to give all of their life in service to him. I want to recommend a motion picture to you. Chariots of Fire is showing at the Merriman Avenue Theater. Go see it. Those of you who have roots in Scotland will be able to recognize many scenes that will come to your eyes. But you'll see one of my great heroes, Eric Little, the great hero of the 1924 Olympics in Paris. And you'll get to see that Eric Little will not be fooled by the fake glory of this world, but he will stick to his principles and to his faith in God in such a remarkable and incredible way that they made a film on it now, and, and uh, when they went to Hollywood, they laughed at him. Who would want to see a film about a man who wouldn't run a race on Sunday? in 1924 and yet the film has won festival after festival after festival uh, in the film honors and someone told me this week that they thought that the soundtrack of the film had actually paid for the budget of producing the film they had to get Greek and Egyptian money to support it but it's a great film and it's because that man would not sacrifice his principles. He ran for the glory of God. And he ran to do God's pleasure. And when the twitty little king of England tried to talk him out of it, I thought it was so ironical, this man who gets off the throne to marry Wallace Simpson, who had been married twice before, tells this guy that he ought to sacrifice for his country and give up his religious principles. And, and uh, Eric Little says no. And they reminded him that he was talking to the king. And he said, I'm obeying God who puts kings up and who takes them down. And they couldn't shake him from his determination. And when they set him loose in the 400 meters on Thursday, they passed the word that he would burn out at 100 yards because he was a sprinter and in 300 yards he would fade. He faded all right. He ran so fast that all they saw was the back numbers on his shirt. And he won the gold medal. And not only won the gold medal, but set all previous records for it. And the interesting thing was that he won with a graciousness and a detachment from it. It wasn't a consuming passion. He wanted to glorify God. So he gave his all for his Lord, and then he was satisfied. Now, this is what we're being warned against here. Don't try to enshrine Jesus so you can control him, but give yourself to him so that you will obey him. Now, let me close with one statement. Jesus Christ laid aside his glory when he came to earth. Because of his finished work on the cross, he has received back his glory and now shares it with us. However, we do not have to wait for heaven 
to share in this transfiguration glory. When we surrender ourselves to God, he will transfigure our minds. That's that Romans 12, 2 that I just read. And as we yield to the Spirit of God, he changes us from glory to glory. That's that 2 Corinthians 3 passage. And as we look into the Word of God, we see the Son of God and are transformed by the Spirit of God into those who will glorify God. How about your life? Is it surrendered to Him? Now in prayer. O God, our Father, we thank you that thou hast acknowledged thy Son in such glorious way before those who were to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering and to be conformable unto his death. And that that formula was not only for Peter and James and John, but it is for each one of us too. Help us to be willing to die to self that Christ might live in us. We pray that we may be forgiven for our selfishness in trying to use him instead of submitting ourselves to his lordship. Help us to be true disciples. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore.